Sometimes you choose courage, and at other times it's forced upon you. Courage Unraveled is a podcast series where you get to listen to insights, discussions, conversations, and stories from people from all walks of life. You'll be served with dollops of courage, resilience, and strength here. So come along and be educated and inspired. You just may find new ways to flex your own courage muscle. My name is Sana Turnock, and I'm your host. Today, I interview Bee, who was born in Mississippi and now lives in the Silicon Valley in California. Bee is a product developer for Netflix and is described as a diamond speaker. They are a talented communicator, an expert in diversity issues pertaining to women, and build successful product and engineering teams. They help people find their fit in IT and are passionate about LGBTQ issues. Bee's background is in product development and creating strong cultural work environments within tech companies. Today, Bee and I catch up, not to talk about Bee's work or passions, although we do, but something deeply personal. Bee was charged with multiple crimes they did not commit and had to go to trial to fight for their freedom. Did they go to jail? Listen to this powerful story and find out for yourself. I caught up with Bee online. It's a real privilege to be able to share these inspiring podcasts of courage with you. The work undertaken takes many hours to put together and is self-funded. Become a Courage Unraveled patron on Patreon and not only will you be supporting the podcast, you will also be helping yourself by investing in your own courage. Get access to pre-release episodes and patron-only specials. It's easy being a patron and the first tiers are less than two coffees per month. Cultivate and flex your courage muscle by signing up for a one-to-one Grow Into My Courage program and grab your very own journal. You grow your courage muscle by activating it. Listen to the podcasts, grab yourself the courage journal, sign up to the Grow Into My Courage program and become a patron. After this episode, head over to courageunravel.com. It's all happening there. Grow into your courage today. B. Welcome to Courage Unraveled. I'm so happy to be here. I'm glad you're here too. You've come on the program to share a story with the listeners about a a challenging time in your life which began in March 2002. Mm -hmm. You were charged with multiple crimes which you didn't commit. What were those charges made against you? It was a couple of different conflated things. Actually, maybe if I just give you a little background of like what happened and then kind of correlate that to the charges. So essentially in 2002, I was 16. Yes, I was still 16. And I worked for my aunt's company, which is this apartment community. And on the weekends, I would go into the, the office and, and do paperwork for them. I would input the, do some data entry, put those forms in. For the most part, this was just to help facilitate payments to various vendors for these apartment communities. One day in 2002, I'm in the office, the fire alarm started going off. And of course I leave because I'm just like, well, it's a fire alarm. This is a big deal. So I take the stairs down, a whole bunch of fire trucks come in. I get in my car, I go home. And then a couple of days later, I get asked to come into the fire department to, to answer some questions. And at the end of that session, I was arrested. And so the arrest was for arson as well as attempted murder based on the fact that there were people in the building as well. If I remember correctly, there were two or three counts of that because it was for each person who was actually in the building and then also destruction of property. But all of these were felony charges and they were all things where I could potentially be charged as an adult and not a juvenile. So it was a a very kind of terrifying experience. 
Absolutely. That's very serious. So there are other people in the building. So why kind of evidence do they have to, or evidence that they thought they had, that they could lay those charges on you? Yeah, it's really interesting. So how the building was worked out is that there are a lot of businesses in this building. I was on the fourth floor and I guess the fire broke out on the third floor. So they were like, you're the, you're the person closest to the floor. So that was like part of it. Then they were just like, well, you're a young person. You're black. At the time, I was a young person who had messed around a little bit. So there was some stuff that I had done, a little bit of shoplifting and things like that. Uh, So they were just like, well, obviously you did it. And I was just like, whoa. So you think I went from like shoplifting a pair of sneakers to trying to kill three people? That seems like a bit of a leap. Yeah, so it's quite circumstantial then. It it really was. And actually, when we actually went through the trial, so first of all, I was so fortunate because my community really came together. So my dad is a minister. My mom was a social worker. And also I've worked for the city and the county for a lot of different roles. And so a lot of people really came together to kind of crowdfund money for my attorney. My attorney, she was a rock star. She knew. She was just like, this is super circumstantial. And I remember the first thing she told me, she's like, like, don't even worry about anything. Because the only thing we really have to worry about right now is making sure that they only charges a juvenile. Because if you're in a juvenile court, any judge is going to listen to who you are and they're going to really believe you. And so that's the first thing she focused on. But when we were actually in the trial, the fire uh, people who investigated came in and they were supposed to be showing proof that there was evidence that I did this crime. And one of the pictures they showed was actually just them doing like thumbs up and like, you know, around (laughs) at the scene. And I was just so embarrassed for them because I was just like, so like, not only are you charging me with something I don't think that I did, But like legitimately, you have embarrassed yourself further because this is in your evidence to somehow convict me. That's rather mind blowing. And what did did the court say? What did the judge say? So it was really interesting because, well, and, and again, so the community came together. I mean, I had teachers, my softball coaches. I had folks coming out of the woodwork saying, you know, I will testify for you. I will make sure people know who you are and the quality of your character. And so at the end of the, the case, and it was really interesting because one of the reasons I wanted to talk about this is that. Technically, I was not found guilty or not guilty. And so in juvenile court, there's this notion, like, it goes to this notion of like judges and the power judges have. And so the judge goes, you know, there's really not any evidence to prove that you did this, but you were there. And, and I remember this very clearly because he said, but you were there. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you probation for like 12 months or whatever. You have to you know, check in with this officer and, I'm, and you have to do this number of community service hours. And if you do that, I will basically strike this from your record. So the official state of that is called under advisement. So basically, I was never, no one could prove or even had evidence that I did anything. But for the basically those next 12 months, I had to be perfect in order to make sure that, you know, the judge wouldn't decide to do something to me. That's really remarkable. Did they end up interviewing the other people that were in the building working at the time? Yes. And in fact, oh, my gosh, this was... One of the, the craziest people in interviewed was like, so there was like two guys and I think one woman. And the woman, she was like hysterical on the stand. And she basically was just like, yes, I can't believe I almost died and like whatever. And it was like really weird. But my, of course, they were asking her practical questions, which was, did you see anyone? Did you see anything suspicious? And as it turns out, she actually did see something suspicious. She's like, I noticed that one of the doors was propped open and I thought that was strange. And I was just like, OK, well, if you thought the, that was strange, the doors propped open, why didn't you close the door? Right. Why didn't you do something to make sure the door was no longer open or something like that? But basically, no one indicated that they saw anything, saw like a specific person or they understood how the fire started or anything like that. And the only thing that ever came up was this like idea that the door was propped open at one point. And so that potentially was what, you know, like whoever the bad actor was, maybe they did that. Did that check for fingerprints? 
No, and even in the case, basically they just explained, well, you know, we know what kind of accelerant was used. We know all these different things. And and the case really was you were in the building. Other people who were in the building, you seem very like the most likely person who would have done this was basically the entire case. Although one of the things that was very interesting to me is later on. So my aunt, of course, who worked there and she actually still works for the same company. Right. Because, you know, my aunt's a rock star. She found all of these records of people who were disgruntled employees. And one person had even specifically said, I'm going to burn down the building. Right. And so they never even investigated that person to see if he actually did try to burn down the building. That's remarkable. So you're 16. How long did the trial last for? So the actual trial, so one, I was pending trial for about, for almost four months. And then the actual trial was only a few days. Actually, I want to say it was more than one day, but it was definitely not like a week or something like that. It was just like a couple days. And then I was under advisement or like what I like to call it, which is basically like a modified version of parole for 12 months. I guess I want to find out from you, and this is if you can recall it, is you're 16, you've done some things, but you certainly didn't commit this crime. What was going on in your mind at the time? Did you feel really like a sense of injustice? It was, so there's a couple of different things. And, and actually, it's so funny because I feel like I hadn't actually talked about this case at all. The first time I ever mentioned it in public was actually last year because it's still, it feels so embarrassing. And it also feels so scarring, right? Because one, I was like kind of this kind of rock star student who has on this like accelerated path and, and had this potential. And so I had never had anyone, and even as a black person in America, I had never really had people tell me I couldn't be great, right? And so to kind of have these people make this decision that I could do that first was super scarring. I remember like the shame and embarrassment I felt just like even being associated with it. But then it was also just like, I had no hope. I assumed, because let's be truthful, like most black people in America are accused of a crime and, and actually put on trial for it, the trial does not usually end up working out very well. And so I was really starting to think, okay, well, if I do go to juvenile court, what does my life look like? You know, if I end up in a facility, will I ever be able to go to college? And then I assumed, I even at that point, like I still had to do all my college applications at that point. And I had really kind of made the assumption that I was not going to be able to go to college, that I was definitely not going to be able to go to the sites of colleges that I was on track to go to before this. And I was trying to think about like what path was going to be there for me. I've gone from being with the thought process of I'm going to be an attorney or, you know, I'm going to be an engineer to, okay, well, if I can just get any type of job after this, like, that'll be a good thing. And in fact, I think, you know, it's that it was that loss of hope that was the hardest part, right? Like, I just, I, I didn't really know what this meant for me. And it was really hard to kind of go through that and, and try to continue to, because like my mom would always say, well, it's going to work itself out. Like, you know, if we have a really good case. We have a really good attorney. You know, you're going to get off and then you're going to go to college and then you're never going to do anything ever again in your entire life because they're using this against you. And obviously I told you, don't mess up. And I was like, you're right. This is, this is a full fledged life lesson right now. That is, it's massive. I mean, attempted murder, far out. I mean, arson's, you know, arson's big. <laughs> attempted murder, you've got a double whammy right there, right? Exactly. And it's actually really interesting to me because it also made me reframe. So a lot of times when I think you hear activists talk about the legal system and how the legal system is really broken, this is a great example of it. The district attorneys, those folks had the opportunity to make a decision about my future. And when they were thinking about my future, they were thinking, well, we're just going to charge this person with every possible maximum possible crimes. Right. And, and think about that. Right. So let's let's pretend another human, not me, but someone who actually did do this thing. 
they're making decision about a 16 year old at that time that they're they're not worthwhile. Like there's no redemption for them. And I think that's the scariest thing when I started like really starting to investigate and started understanding things, especially as I've gotten older, is that that doesn't make sense. Like a district attorney can't make the decision for one person over here. Oh, and actually, interesting story. When I was going through this whole process, another person who I went to school with, which was a very young white guy, same class, uh, very rich family, he'd actually gotten drunk, took his car, told it, like put it into another person's car caused severe injuries and everything like that. They never even considered putting him on trial as an adult. He immediately went to juvenile court. And two, when it was all said and done, he ended up with six months probation and he almost killed someone. Like he legitimately did it and he was illegally drinking. And so I remember talking to him about this trial because he was like, oh, like, what'd you do? Like, I can't even imagine you did anything, B. And I was like, that's because I didn't do anything. And he was just like, and I told him what my crime was. He was like, dude, like I actually did what I did. And, you know, like, no big deal. And he actually ended up going to Ivy League school. His career sucks, though. He's totally a complete mess up in life now. But it was just like this really interesting juxtaposition, like this real life lesson that I learned that my black body might be judged very differently than his white body. Yeah. And that's, you know, with what's happening in the United States at the moment, you know, that happened to you a number of years ago now, yeah? And it's still going on in various forms today in the United States. Does that does that time bring things up for you now with what's happening in the United States? Yeah, and that's one of the reasons I I wanted to be here and talk about this, right? Because one, I'm a really successful technology professional now, now, right? And so when people look at my life, they go, B, well, you went to the best schools. Like I went to Ivy League type schools. I've now worked at some of the the biggest, most well-respected technology companies. People really look up to me. And they assume that my life was like this really easy, simple path. And I'm like, actually, no, not at all. Like I went through a lot of stuff. But it also is that it's triggers for me when I hear people talking about, well, why didn't that person, you know, listen to the police? Or if that person had just done this thing, I am living proof that you could do everything right and then still be completely in the hands of the justice system and your life could be over. And so it's very important to me to kind of like, you know, for us folks who have been able to convert this into a success story to make sure people understand that that's through perseverance that is through the fact that like I know what that looks like. And that also means that when I think about the world, I think about everyone's potential. If people could look at young people especially and look at their potential, look at what they could become instead of focusing on their skin color or focusing on their tattoos or focusing on what all those different things, I think we would all be much better, right? Because if those if those uh, attorneys, if I could talk to those attorneys and that those firemen who, you know, decided that I must be the, the bad guy, I think that they would be pretty sad to know that all the work I've done, all the things that I've done would not have happened if they'd been successful. Mm, Absolutely. But the flip side of that, though, who knows? You know, you still might have been determined. You have a sense of determination about you. And do you think also the support that you got from your family, would that have pulled you through if if you did go to jail? It depends, right? The problem is, though, is that depending on the types of charges you have and how your record works out, that follows you forever. I sent you like, I was like, oh, look at this example of my case and what it stated. One of the reasons I actually had to contact the Shelby County government and get proof that my case had been resolved was because I was going to do application for the TSA. So there's like this, the Trusted Travelers Program, so that you can go in and outside, in like to the special line, Uh, So it's called TSA Pre. 
And then you can also do the global entry program, which means that when you come back to the United States, you can get in more easily. Well, every single time I go through any type of federal system, this pings up on my record, right? Which means that there are certain jobs that I actually wouldn't be able to get just for the fact that this shows up on my record. I'm in the process of hiring an attorney to see if we can actually get this completely removed once and for all. But that's the thing. So the thing about that is that even with determination, these types of things follow you for years. And the thing that I really want to make sure to to note here is I was literally not convicted of anything. Right. And so I'm a a very lucky case that it's it's much easier for me to convince those different organizations and systems because it's so clear I wasn't convicted of something. But had I actually been convicted, it would be a different thing. I wouldn't be able to have TSA pre. I wouldn't be able to have global entry. There are numerous jobs that I wouldn't be able to have. And so even though there's that what if my trajectory would definitely be hampered in so many different things that I might want to pursue. And even from a technology perspective, so I work in the technology industry. I remember when I first got into technology, I didn't pursue any types of companies that worked with airlines. I didn't do any types of companies that did any type of defense types of things because I knew specifically that there was a high likelihood that I would not, that one of those things would come up and that would follow me. And I didn't want to risk that. Yeah. Fair enough. You're quite wise in your selection then. It's like you planned where you wanted to go. Something that I've been talking about with a lot of my friends is the fact that, you know, as a black person, you do have to plan so much more thoroughly, right? Because there is like, let let me make sure that I kind of go for this job or this industry or this type of thing, because you know that there's going to be like there's potential pushback and harm that can come into other spaces. Absolutely. I'm curious to know, how did you select your lawyer? Or did you say earlier that you were designated this particular lawyer? Basically, my dad and my mom were just, like I said, they were super well connected in the community. And so they had a sense of who they could kind of reach out to, who might be a good example of someone to go with. And then obviously, once they talked to her, it was really great because like my family is super poor. And so like, even though we crowdsourced like different funds and things like that, it still was like, okay, well, you have to pay up front. And so it was just like, well, can we like do a payment plan? Like we totally going to hit you up. We really can't afford this. <laughs> but yeah, no, so she was super flexible and she was just really great. She was just like a great partner because when you're going through these types of processes, it's so easy to kind of get down on yourself. And because she was so wise and she knew so much, it was just really, really easy to kind of trust that she had it. As long as I shut up and didn't do anything to, to mess up her case, she was like, I got this. I don't even need you to say anything. <laughs> Fantastic. I love it. So when you were there, your, your lawyer clearly spoke on your behalf, and this was in the juvenile system if you were jailed. When you turned 18, then they would have shifted you through to the adult system anyway, right? Not necessarily. So it depends on your state. Juvenile law is very complicated, so different states have different rules. So, for instance, in the state of Tennessee, I most likely I would have potentially stayed in the juvenile system until I was 21, and then they could have okay. potentially like shifted me. It depends on where it worked out because – the potential outcomes of the case, for instance, even in Tennessee, I believe they also could put you in a situation where you have to be monitored until you're 24, which also would have meant that I couldn't leave the state of Tennessee. I would have had to have permission and things like that for those types of things, even once I was out of the, the system. What have you learned from that experience you know, about your work, about who you are as a person? So interesting. So we're talking right now, and, and yesterday we found out that Chadwick Bozeman died, right? And it reminded me of kind of something that I try desperately to do, which is to make my life meaningful, right? And to create a legacy that is worthwhile because like to to some extent, having gone through that experience and being able to kind of come out of it and and not have gone to jail and things like that, 
I am so lucky. It almost feels like it's a bonus life, right? You know, I got like yeah. the, an extra life card, which most people don't get. And so what really came out of that is like this desire to be really good at what I do, but also translate that into other people, right? I'm a product manager and I mentor dozens of younger product managers and helping them get into the field, especially women and, and you know, black and brown and Asian folks as well. And then also that means I give back a lot. I'm on the board of two large nonprofits, and the things that I really, really care about are trying to create a world that is more equitable and also create a world that treats Black women much more effectively. And so I'm on the board of the YWCA of Chicago and also on the board of Howard Brown Health in Chicago as well. And so my wife and I, we spend so much time giving back and trying to kind of mentor other young people and help them understand how these different systems work and how to be successful despite how those systems might treat them. And so that's kind of been my life's work. It's weird because professionally, my life's work is to how to make multi-billion dollar companies lots and lots of money. But personally, my life's work is how to kind of help people who look like me and, and have the same background as me get into those spaces so then they can then have be empowered and be successful to do the same exact thing for the next generation after them. That's a perfect situation to be in. I mean, you get paid good money, right, to do that. And so that is an assumption. <laughs> then you've got the financial freedom to do what you want to do. It's, I think it's a very good position to be in. You're very fortunate. Well, yeah. And it's also what I tell all the people I'm meant to. I was like, you work really hard so that you can be empowered to do your life's work when you're ready for it. Right. Because it just makes a huge difference. And in fact, my wife and I talk all the time. We're like, so at some point we're going to get over, we're going to be over this rat race and we're probably just going to go over to the nonprofit sector and just do nonprofit work, work that like really just community-based work to help out the people that we really think have the potential to really change the world. I think your story is pretty powerful. Potentially anyone in the, in the situation that you, you found yourself in, there would be a lot of stress, a lot of stress. And to pull yourself through that, you know, I mean, you've got lots of fear perhaps going on and they've got to pull through that. And so that takes a level of courage and resilience yeah, I agree. So that in itself. And I have to also acknowledge, I was also like, I definitely was depressed. In fact, it's so interesting because one of the things I had to do in order to prepare for this interview was to sit down and try to like put piece back together everything that happened. What's really interesting about that is that I find that the more I try to engage this specific period of my life, there are a a lot of blank spots. One of the things that my wife mm. and I talk about all the time is that, you know, severe depression and anxiety actually creates memory loss. And so I wonder how yes. much memory I actually lost during that period until I got to a place where I felt safe again. Because like, I remember kind of like the trial and then like dealing with the 12 months. But then my next big memory after that is actually when I was on campus at Duke University and it was my freshman year, it was like this freshman evening thing that they did. And so you, you had to wait in line to get a t-shirt. And that's the next thing I really remember. I also remember having with that memory, like I made it, right? So it's like my yeah. body had finally kind of given up that fear mechanism. And it was like, okay, you can start to relax a little bit. Yep. And there's been studies that actually show that about memory loss, you know, childhood trauma, trauma, PTSD, what, what it does to the memory. So you're definitely onto something there. You mentioned Maya Angelou as someone you admire because of her courage. So for those people who don't know who Maya Angelou was, she was a poet, she was a writer, an activist, a cultural influencer and a mentor to many and she certainly found her way in the political scene even not necessarily, you know, wanting to, she was there. How did you come to meet her? It goes back to Duke again. So when I was at Duke University, freshman year, she was our freshman speaker. I don't know if Duke still does this, but in 2003, Duke would have these speakers come in and she was a speaker for that year. And then they had a few different people 
who would be her escort for the day. And I happened to be one of the people selected to be her escort. I'm not gonna lie, I, I couldn't really form words. I was like, I just know I'm supposed to do anything that you asked me to do. That's that's all I'm going to do. <laughs> and it was really great because one, the talk that she gave that day, she's always so good at kind of bringing herself into it. And so she talked a little bit about her life. And then she also happened to teach at the school not that far from us. And I just remember thinking like, man, like this woman who, again, is someone who looks like me, you know, who has a similar background as I do. She's standing up in front of all these like super fancy people. We're literally all just sitting there with bated breath, waiting to hear the knowledge she's going to give to us. That was like one of the most powerful things that's ever, you know, kind of occurred for my life. Absolutely. What an amazing woman. For people who haven't read her story, she went through so much in her early life. She's a fantastic example of strength and resilience and grit and just continually persevering with the amount of honorary degrees and doctorates and the like. Huge amount. She spoke her poetry at the inauguration of presidents. I mean, you know, like Obama, yeah. right? Well, actually, no, not, not Obama. I yeah. believe it was Clinton. And, oh, Bill Clinton, yeah, was it Bill Clinton. Clinton as well? Yeah, she's like a national treasure. But I also think it's very interesting because we know her so much and her sophistication as a literary figure and this professor, we forget about this sassy, amazing, beautiful, voluptuous dancer and actress and who actually kind of captivated so many of the civil rights activists and they were just like we just want you to be around us and they didn't know why they were like you're smart but also like you're just like this captivating human and so that's the other thing that's very interesting about her i think is that this idea that we don't have to be one thing we can be anything and that's what i love about her too and and also i mean i've never met her i've just known her through her books and just through video clips and the like but gee she had a dynamic energy and and her voice, I fell in love with her voice. Oh, yes. I love, yes. just I love her voice. Oh, if we could, like, figure out how to get, like, a voice that sounds like that. Like, you know, Siri and, like, Alexa, they're not, they're not hitting it. <laughs> yeah, like, you know, yeah. we need, like, a Maya Angelou <laughs> type voice. It would really get me to do some stuff. I'd be like, yes, I am going to go do that thing I told you to set a reminder for. And I think also, you know, in one of her collections, is it's called, like, I wouldn't take nothing for my journey. I think that's the other thing that is very interesting about her is that she reminds us to be unapologetic, take the space that we need, that we should honor the things that we've gone through and understand that those things are what makes us us and that we don't have to see this through the lens of other people in order for our journey to be worthwhile. Yeah, I guess you just have to believe that it's worthwhile. Eh? It comes back to, to self-confidence and belief at the end of the day. And she would be a fantastic person to know that she had to pull herself out of that quagmire. Yeah. You know how like people love to do the icebreakers? Like, what's one person in history that you'd want to sit down and have dinner with? And I'm like, it's always my Angela. And they're like, well, I've known you long enough that I know that's going to be your answer. So you can't do your first one. You have to do your second one. And I'm like, well, it doesn't really matter because I'm, I'm still in my Angela. <laughs> but you had the opportunity to talk to her and you were probably starstruck, yeah, right? I mean, I basically said like seven words to her, but I'm sure she felt my energy because my energy was like, <laughs> you are a goddess amongst humans and I do, none of us are worthy of you. Did she say anything to you? Just anything, any words of wisdom? She asks, where are you from? What are you studying? Things like that. So like basic stuff. And, you know, I think she knew that our role was just to get her from point A to point B. Right. So I don't really think that we were initially engaging on that level. I, and, and also it was a very short period of time because we basically just kind of greeted her from when she first got to campus, you know, took her to like the various paths to get to the location and just hung out with her until it actually started. That was still probably only maybe 30 minutes. So it wasn't necessarily the amount of time that you really need to kind of get into like my Angelo level consultation. I <laughs> Look, you just you're there. You felt your energy. <laughs> you're very fortunate. Exactly. 
I want to provide you two quotes from Maya Angelou. Let me know whether either of them resonate with you and if so, why. The first one is this. If you don't like something, change it. If you can't change it, change your attitude. That's the first one. The second one is there is no greater agony than bearing an untold story inside of you. I definitely think it's the second one. And in fact, I think that's why I feel such a desire to make sure that my story is true. Like this comes from my mouth. It's so interesting because again, I think with the way the world is kind of operating, I don't know if it's COVID, the massive desire for civil rights change, but it is this idea of what is your legacy? And Hamilton says it best, right? Who will tell your story? And it's like this desire to tell my story. I need to make sure people know me. Absolutely. I actually watched Hamilton two days ago. Mm -hmm. I really, really loved it. My daughter, who's 13, put me onto it. The way they put it together was just phenomenal. Great message, great acting, great, great music, you know, brilliantly put together. I'm obsessed. Like, I've seen it three times live now. And of course, of course, you know, once it was available for streaming, I stream it too. It's just like one of those things. There's just so much of that. I mean, it's again, it's another story of someone who had to go through so much. And now, like, when you look at the entire United States Treasury system, you could think, oh, well, Hamilton gave us that. God really loved to have a focus on his wife. I mean, his wife sounded like she was a pretty amazing woman once he passed. Yeah, no. And what she did, you, you know, like creating the first orphanage in New York, that's pretty impressive, along with many other things that she did. I agree. And, I, and it, it would not surprise me to see something like that coming to fruition sooner than later, especially because there's Absolutely. a huge focus on telling more stories about dynamic women that somehow we forget about. And then you're like, wait, darn, she did more in her lifetime, if you think about it, to kind of really change the way. Because we wouldn't think of Hamilton if it wasn't for her. That's right. Let's let's keep moving on, which is for me to ask you to define courage. Mm-hmm. Let's see. What does courage mean to me? So courage to me is doing something that is against the grain or that is really hard, right? It's not something that comes naturally or easy. Like you actually have to persevere in some way to execute on it. That's a great definition. And are you courageous? You know, I try to be. I I definitely feel when I think of words to describe me, first and foremost, I like to think of brave. And to be truthful, like, so I am a black trans non-binary lesbian, right? So like saying that out loud consistently takes a certain amount of bravery. And so I do believe that's how I try to live my life. But I will say that just like anyone, there are moments of fear. Like I know that when I disagree with my manager at work, there's a chance that could come back to bite me, but I still have to continue to do it because when I think about myself, if I think I can help improve something in the world, whether it's work or real life, I get squirmy if I don't do something about it. It's going to drive me crazy if I don't stand up and, and say something. Sounds like you're standing tall in your integrity. To me, that's partly what being courageous is about. And you certainly do that, B. Thank you so much for being on Courage Unraveled today. I really appreciate your time. I appreciate you sharing your story for the first time. That's a really powerful thing to do. That takes a lot of courage. And you've shown your resilience by being the person you are today. Thank you. Thank you so much for this podcast. I I really have spent some time sitting with your podcast and I really love the concept of it, right? Because this is what we need. And it's so easy to tell the tragic stories, but it's very difficult to to show that sometimes those stories can turn into the thing that you need to make you the the greatest version of yourself. B has certainly been through a lot and shows how support from others can build resilience and inner strength. I love how they turned adversity into a growth opportunity 
which is now part of their life tapestry and success story. It is also gold that Bee uses her tech wizardry to mentor up and coming young product managers to get into the tech industry. You'll find the contact details of Bee Pagels Minor in the show notes at courageunravel.com forward slash podcasts and make sure you look at series three. To find out more about Growing to My Courage program or how to become a patron supporter of the program and receive benefits, head over to courageunravel.com to find out more. Thank you for listening wherever you are. If you like what you hear, please leave a Google review via courageunravel.com forward slash podcasts or a review on your favourite podcast channel. Stay courageous, keep growing that courage muscle. My name is Sana Turnock and I'm your host.